Well, if you're not already there, turn in your Bibles to the book of Colossians and to the third chapter. We are ready today for the 17th verse, continuing to recognize what a gift, what a grace from God this is for us to be able to walk through this letter that is so rich with the truths of Christ. If you are visiting with us, our conviction as a church is to not preach topically per se, but to teach according to what each book of the Bible lays out and to walk through God's word in detail and to recognize uh, as deeply as we can the truths that are there. Well, today we come to a verse, verse 17, a command, a thought that is either so general and so big that we won't apply hardly any of it at all. We'll just be overwhelmed by the thought or shut down. Or we'll see it as incredibly convicting and perhaps change how we live going forward. Verse 17 is a tremendous life principle, a rich, strong rule of thumb for the Christian life. It's not long, not particularly complex in its wording or concepts. But oh, is it ever comprehensive and demanding. So context, whether that's for those of you who are brand new just hearing this one or for all of us who have been walking through this, I propose to you that there's three ways to see why verse 17 is sitting where it is in this list of uh, commands, this long list of 30-some commands. First of all, it could just be an outflow of verse 16 And what the word of Christ is doing. That as it's dwelling in us, we're not only in our worship times or our times together going to teach and admonish and sing. But we're also going to go out from here and in all the other areas of our lives continue to live out what the word of Christ dwelling richly in us is doing. Secondly, bigger and broader than that, we could see this as a climactic finishing thought for what we would call this paragraph that runs from verse 11, begins in verse 11, as I would propose it. Some think it begins in verse 12, and flows down through, and this is now the wrap-up thought. So one way to look at this is, verse 11 has that very broad statement, Christ is all, and in all, and now at the end, we've got more of that, now do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Third, biggest and broadest of all, we might picture verse 17 as the overarching point of all of the commands. All the way back to 3.1, where we are to set our mind and our focus, all the way through 4.6. So this chapter and a half, this very large section of commands. And now we might picture 17 as smack dab in the middle of all of these other commands. So if we might picture the 30 or so commands in this section as a mountain range of 30, 35 mountains, we might see verse 17, though I propose to you that verses 1 through 4 are a big setup for this, but verse 17 as kind of this Mount Everest casting its shadow out on all the other commands. In other words, every command of God we are to carry out, whether it's from Colossians in this list or anywhere else in God's word, should be done in 
the name of Jesus Christ and for the name of Jesus Christ. So, again, we will either find this verse so demanding, so daunting, that we won't even try. We won't change a thing. We'll go on as if we never heard it. Or it will rattle our cage and it will stir a looking at all of our life to see how comprehensively Christ in us is influencing us. So let's go to the Lord for help. Lord, we come to your words here in this verse asking you to help us to live them out truly as you intended when you had Paul write these down for us. Knowing 2,000 years later we would be looking at this thought today and that every person in this sanctuary listening online down in the basement would hear and have time to ponder and consider. So we want to pray what you tell us in James 1, to put away all of the rampant sin, the filth that yet remains in our lives that will eat away at this command rather than let it dwell in us richly. And we ask that you will help us humbly, meekly receive this truth to recognize its implications and to, by your grace, by your power, by your spirit, by your word, by your church, help us live this out more fully, we pray. For the glory of our great Savior, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So let's divide this, verse 17, into three sections. You're kind of getting used to this now as we're settling in on, honing in on things a little more deeply. And let's start with the middle part, the name. And spend some time just thinking about the significance of that. Because if you skim over that, I think you've missed the central point of why this command is here. So, names we know are massively important to God. Both names that we are given, names that other humans are given. But even more so, names that God has given himself and given to us and revealed to us. So just that word name, just in English, if you do a search, shows up about 800 times in the Old Testament. Certainly not always about God, often about man, but many, 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 many names of God given to us there. And then again in the New Testament over 200 times. So together that makes almost a thousand times in the Bible God addresses this concept in some way. So lots of sermons could be preached on it. But here in verse 17, God seems to hone us in particularly on a name or a combination of names that particularly highlight Christ by the names Lord and Jesus. So Philippians 2, 9 to 11 tells us that because of what Christ did in becoming the Jesus incarnated in a human body, and providing a means of salvation that when he returned to heaven, ascended after rising from the dead, God exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name. And then we're told what that is. It's the name of Jesus. And then what it will do. It will buckle every knee. It will take every control of every tongue. And all will bow and confess the greatness of this name and person. And that's reiterated by Paul in Ephesians 1 as well. So what's in this concept of 
doing things in the name of the Lord Jesus. Well, his name, often spoken singularly, but you can even see here that there's two parts. Sometimes there's three parts, uh, and certainly lots of different combinations, but often spoken singularly. It's the verbal embodiment of who he is, of his nature, his attributes, and his works. Those are all caught up in his name. So much that that name does. So brace yourself for the next few minutes as we take a whirlwind tour almost exclusively of the New Testament. Uh, because the Old Testament was just overwhelming, didn't have the time to work through. But we could do multiple sermons on just the richness of his name. But here's some points that we can pull out very quickly. We are saved by his name. So we think of, we are saved by him as a person. But God over and over also says that that's so connected to Christ that the name is part of what is involved in our salvation. So you can see three different places in the book of John that John emphasized believing in the name of the Lord Jesus. It comes up in the preaching in Acts as well. And then in 1 Corinthians, and then John again in his first letter. Over and over and over, you see salvation in the name of God connected. Secondly, Scripture tells us that we are forgiven of our sins in his name, through his name. And that when we proclaim his name and believe it, part of what is done is that we are forgiven for his name's sake. Third. In the same vein, we repent of our sins in his name. So he wants us to go forth and depart from iniquity because we name the name of the Lord. It is the power for us to do that, and we do it because of the holiness of his name. Fourth, his followers, as we saw this morning in Adria's example, are to be baptized in his name. You heard her in her testimony and I in my pronouncing as we baptized her that it's done in the name and that's an all-encompassing Father, Son, Holy Spirit and Peter's charge in Acts 2 as well is to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Fifth, when Jesus left the earth in the Last Supper evening he told the disciples that he would leave and that he would send a helper but the helper would be sent in his name. Interesting how just the Godhead is working together and the work that the Spirit would do. Sixth, we see this predominantly in the book of Acts, that people are healed by his name. So when Paul and, or I'm sorry, Peter and John were walking out amongst the people in Jerusalem and at times healing people, they always made it clear this healing has been done not because of us, not because of the power of a handkerchief, this healing has, been done, healing has been done because of faith in his name. And so in James 5, the church also is called to uh, come together when people are sick to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. It's not the oil that has the power, but the name of the Lord. Demons are driven away by his name. So many examples that we can give of this, but particularly when the 72 disciples were sent out to do missional work, they came back and testified that demons all over the place had to be subject to the name. Eighth, we are told to revere the name. We get that in the Lord's Prayer. 
our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May we always keep it reverent, and that flows out of the Ten Commandments and the command that we are never to speak or take that name lightly or in vain or in less than reverent ways. Ninth, our prayers must be uttered in faith in his name. And they are powerful when we have faith in that name. Jesus promises again on that Last Supper night that whatever you ask in my name, so what's encompassed in that? Same phraseology that we see here in Colossians 3. Faster yet. Tenth, when we gather in his name, his presence among us is even intensified, or our sense of it, because he says, I'm particularly there among you when two or three or more believers are gathered, like even this morning. Eleventh, we're to be willing to incur great costs and risks for that name. It is so significant and important. So lots and lots of verses that speak of what we have to sacrifice and give up for that name uh, in order to honor the Lord and serve him and the rewards that come from that. So you can see that that name, from God's perspective, brings great blessing. From man's perspective, brings great persecution. Twelfth, we're protected in his name. In John 17, Jesus' prayer in the garden just before he went to the cross, he asked the Father to keep them in his name, that he had kept them in the Father's name and guarded them apart from, as God's plan detailed, Judas and his betrayal. I love one of my favorite verses in Proverbs. What a word picture. And I dipped in the Old Testament just a couple of times, but I couldn't resist one. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. What a, what a metaphor. What a powerful picture. But then the righteous man runs into it, into the name, and is safe. Thirteenth, we are to acknowledge and adore his name, to lift up praises and to, in those praises, acknowledge the greatness of his name. Fourteenth, and now we get into some mysterious elements of the future. When the new heaven and the new earth come, and we enter those and enjoy those, we're told, first of all, the church in Revelation 3 is told that all who conquer will not only be made a pillar uh, in the temple, but they will have written on them the name of God. And then at the end of that, after the city as well, my own new name. Revelation 22. Uh, they will see his face. What a glorious moment that will be. And his name will be on their foreheads. In whatever ways that all may look and all that that means. All of this to say, just in that whirlwind tour, and we didn't even touch on the hundreds upon hundreds of Old Testament references to the name of the Lord. But maybe Psalm 8 captures it best. Twice in there it declares, how majestic is your name in all the earth. In so many ways, how glorious it is. So, that brings us to our 15th observation of the name of the Lord in the New Testament, and that is Colossians 3.17. That we are to act, to live, to speak in the name some of those implications to be ever conscious that you bear the name the holy mighty name of the lord because you are in him and he is in you and so we are to live in accordance with all that his name means and all that it is significant 
This is a picture of we are being his representatives, bearing his same name so that he might receive glory by it. Thinking in everything that we're doing, how does this reflect on the name of Christ? So, simpler implications, not simpler, but uh, in the ways that this has worked out. Here's one example in 1 Timothy 6, that how we work, even under masters who may be unjust, cruel, mocking, whatever, that how we respond to them, that if we will regard them as worthy of all honor because the Lord has told us to, then the name of the Lord will not be reviled. Um, and then going on, how we treat people with the simplest act of receiving a child, welcoming a child in Christ's name. Jesus goes so far as to say, that's receiving me. Hebrews 10 just notes again how well we work, how well we love, how well we serve the saints. All of this scene that God is observing and watching and that matters greatly to him, everything that we're doing. Now, most of us are doing more for our name than his. For our earthly name that will perish rather than for his eternal glory blazing name. We do some things for his name. I would think, you would think that you're gathered here this morning in his name, for his name. But far too many things we continue to do for ourselves. The problem is we don't focus enough on the greatness of his name and therefore we forget about it for long stretches of our days or weeks and focus largely instead on pleasing ourselves. So Paul Washer just observes this obsessive preoccupation with self has usurped the place of Jesus in the life and ministry of countless churches, and I would add countless Christians. God here is saying that he's called us and saved us to a much higher and much greater cause than just living for ourselves. Incredible responsibility that that is. So, briefly here, still in the middle, the Lord Jesus, that particular, out of all the names of Scripture that God could have had Paul write here, he chose to bring together Lord and Jesus as one way of thinking in a balanced way of Christ. So, we know that the name Jesus is introduced in the New Testament. We first see it in the first chapter of the New Testament when the angel tells Joseph and Mary to name this miracle baby Jesus and then told why because that name Jesus speaks of his salvific power speaks of his mission speaks of why he came and remember that Philippians 2 that the name that's above every name is the name Jesus but also here is Lord that he is equally stunningly Lord of all King over all now we see his second coming here. We zoom ahead to Revelation and we see in the 19th chapter now all kinds of physical descriptions about him. But I want to note the three ways the name is referred to here. First of all, 
that it's written and it's a name no one knows but him. Secondly, there's a name by which he is called and it's the word of God. And think about Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And third, that it's a name, and now we're told a different name three verses later, that he has written on both his robe and on his thigh, King of kings, Lord of lords. And by the way, in Colossians, in the coming weeks, Lord will be emphasized at least four times in verses 22 at the end of it, through 4.1, particularly when speaking of earthly masters and lords and how we balance and live that out. All that at this point to say, we must keep an accurate grasp and a reverent one and an appreciative one, as the last part of this verse will say, for both those names of Jesus or this name of Jesus that is so rich and packed with meaning and power. Okay. Now let's go back to the first third of this verse with these, this repeated command, do, and three expressions with it that are really, really broad and all-encompassing. The word whatever, and you're going to see it again, we'll see it again in verse 23 of chapter 3, coming up, some of the same implications there. Everything, those are the two obvious ones, and then word and deed which is a way of saying from one end of a spectrum to the other, like east to west. Um, we'll see in 1 Corinthians 10.31, it says whether you eat or drink, and it doesn't mean that those are the only two activities that you do for the glory of God. It's saying down to the very simplest of things, whatever really means whatever, it's the whole spectrum. So we're going to take several run-throughs of this concept of why these all-inclusive words. He's capturing the totality with which Christ followers live their lives after meeting and receiving Christ by faith. The completeness, the comprehensiveness with which Christ is to permeate and influence our day-to-day -day lives. We could say that this is part of how the preeminence of Christ, using the language of chapter 1, verse 18, that he's to be preeminent in all things or in everything. Preeminent in our lives and how we live. To act consistently with who Jesus is, with all of the names, rather than simply according to our own name, or our own desires. And I think part of this is emphasizing no compartmentalizing sacred and secular in your life. There's no parts where Jesus is prominent, he's on your lips, he's in your deeds, and then parts of your life where he is not. This is calling for the pervasive and the totality of all of that. All of our talking, how convicting, all of our activity, the eating, the drinking, the use of our time, the use of our money, the use of our talents and abilities, everything that's public and everything that's private. Scott Hubbard captures it this way. That these words, that our obedience is not only in the seen, but the unseen. Not only in the exceptional, but in the mundane. Not only in the crisis moments of life, but in the seemingly casual moments strewn throughout our days. I'll play off of a meme that I shared with you a number of weeks ago that you've probably forgotten, which is a good thing. Uh, but bring it back to try and make a brief application. 
The meme was, people ask, do you really need Jesus to go to heaven? And the answer is, bro, you need Jesus just to go to Walmart. <laughs> Let me modify that in light of this verse and say that even when we go to Walmart, we carry his name with us. So whether we're going to home, to office, to the Starbucks, to the gym, on our trips, or in church, our focus is to be on Christ and fulfilling the mission, the great commission of Christ given to us when he saved us. A couple more circles at this concept and then we'll move to the last part of the verse. So I already tied together 311, Christ is all and do all in his name, I think, are capturing together just everything reflects on Christ. Everything we do and say will either be honoring to him, uplifting of his name, exalting his name or it will not David Garland puts it this way and I'm going to interrupt this quote with some backup from Colossians but you can see the whole quote there we live under Christ's name and are enmeshed in two things in his death so let me remind you of two verses in Colossians go back to chapter 2 and look at verse 12 that we've been buried with him in baptism, even part of what this water baptism today portrays. And then in 2.20, that with Christ you died. And we're enmeshed in his resurrection. Go back to chapter 2, later on in verse 12, you're also raised with him through faith. And then if you look at how chapter 3 opens in verse 1, you've been raised with Christ. So, we're enmeshed in his death and his resurrection. Therefore, we're so enmeshed, so intertwined with Christ, so inseparable from Christ, that everything we do should be done deeply conscious of his calling, his commands, his promises, and his sustenance. His name is our identity. His name is our motivation. His name is our power. And his name is to be our focus. John MacArthur says, believers should so clothe themselves with Jesus Christ, using that imagery from uh, 2 Corinthians, or with, from Romans 15, so clothed with Christ that when people look at them or watch their lives, they see Christ. That we are so transformed, so impacted, so shaped by Christ and what he has done people watching us as we become more and more and more made in his image see more and more of a tangible similarity to the kind of words and actions they would hear and see from Jesus if he were bodily present. All this to say, Jesus isn't looking for half-hearted followers people doing something here and there or just Sunday mornings for him, giving an occasional perfunctory action or word. But he's calling us, reminding us here of the total unification we have with him so that every area of our lives is affected by him. And in that, transitioning to the giving of thanks, the more we see the demands of Jesus like this, the more we realize how much we need the gospel still. Every day, I have to confess that I have failed to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. 
and to seek God's forgiveness and to afresh the next day endeavor by his grace to do so. Now, third part, interwoven in all of this, and again, this is the third. So this is a slide we looked at about six weeks ago when we started verse 15. That the peace of Christ is to be deeply appreciated by us and affect the way we live and interact with each other. The word of Christ is to be deeply appreciated by us and to affect all that we're doing individually and with each other. And now the name of Christ is to be deeply appreciated by us and deeply impact the way that we live. So gratitude now comes to the surface. We've noted it very quickly at the end of verse 15. Noted it a little bit last week at the end of verse 16. And now let's bring it even into the spotlight more. This is a consistent theme. Not only do we see it these three times in a row in Colossians 3, but if you look back at Colossians 1.12, you'll see the thankfulness or the giving of thanks is to be a part. Like this is Paul's prayer for the believers in Colossae, that they would give thanks to the Father for their inheritance. Chapter 2, verse 7, what I think were, were, are one of the Sentinel verses of the letter that you receive him, you walk in him, you're to be built up and you're to be fully established in your faith. And all of that is happening as you're abounding in thanksgiving. Thankfulness is an integral part of how we become more and more rooted in Christ. Just appreciation for him. And then looking ahead in a few weeks, we'll see Colossians 4.2, which calls us in prayer to saturate it with thanksgiving. And we see that also in other letters of Paul. I'm just going to highlight three other verses that are strong on thanksgiving. Philippians 4.8, rather than being anxious about so many things, and certainly that can be true for us here in America, but instead of that, taking everything, not just by supplication, but with saturated with thanksgiving, recognizing what God has done and his all he is doing and trusting in that rather than being anxious, praying. Ephesians 5.20, the parallel text uh, in, to Colossians' letter. And then 1 Thessalonians 5.18 is a familiar one as well, giving thanks in all circumstances. And Paul, of course, modeled this, uh, beginning even this letter with, I thank God for you, back in chapter 1, verse 3. G.K. Chesterton said, and I've shared this before, but it's a good reminder, I would maintain that thanks are the highest form of thought and that gratitude is happiness doubled by wonder. So none of us, again, is grateful enough. We even have to confess our lack of thankfulness. And the sad reality for us Americans is the better we have it in life, generally the less thankful we become, um, the more entitled we tend to feel instead. And the more that we possess and own, the less appreciative we become for each of those gifts. So let's keep striving to grow in this vital grace to recognize that we can never say thank you to the Lord enough or too much. The more you see the glory of Christ and what you're given by his grace, the more, especially compared to what you deserve, the more grateful of a person you will be and the less complaining and grumbling 
you will do and the more thanking and thanking and thanking you can do. What an incredible rule of thumb for the Christian life. I don't know if paraphrasing it or putting it in a different order in words will help you, but here's what I think God is trying to capture here. In all that you do, next slide please, upon receiving Christ and all the glories of salvation, this massive set of gifts that come upon us, then thankfully, with deep gratitude, constantly amazed that God is so good to you in salvation, even if life is hard, so good in salvation, reverently, and what I'm trying to capture there is, the singing in verse 16 is not any more worship than the doing of everything in verse 17. In fact, the doing of everything in verse 17 is far more demanding than the singing. So, we often say worship as music rather than to say, this is really, and Romans 12, 1 and 2 really say that. In view of God's mercy, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. That's this. Lay yourself on the altar, thankfully, reverently, living the rest of your life, primarily concerned about his name, his sake, his glory. It's even in Psalm 23. Can you think of it as you go through your memory? Where does the name show up? Not very far in. He leads me in paths of righteousness. For my sake, yes. I'm like We're blessed by walking in paths of righteousness. But for his name's sake. That's why he's doing all of that. That's the purpose. So, the greatest God of all, with the greatest name of all, giving the greatest salvation of all, and giving the greatest gifts in that salvation of all is certainly worthy of the greatest response of all by the people who benefit so greatly from it. If you're here and you don't know Christ as Savior and Lord, I recognize that a verse like this can make you feel like following him has too great of a cost. But you're not understanding the situation rightly if that's how you're looking at it. Because you're looking only at the temporal, the now, the short-lived. And you're failing to recognize that this is a part of what brings tremendous, tremendous reward and riches in him. So I just want to urge you today to believe in him and to begin repenting of your sins that will go on the rest of your life. Look again at the bulletin. Pick up one of the tracks at either of the entrances and exits and recognize and consider the necessity of Christ having to come to live the way he did, to die and to rise for you and in your place and the sufficiency of what Christ did that you add nothing to that but now offers as a gift to all. Everyone will ultimately call him. Lord, either now willingly surrendering yourself to him or someday buckling under the greatness of his glory when you encounter it, when it's too late. The gift of Jesus Christ and all that comes with him surpasses the worth of anything and everything else that we could ever experience or have a billion times over. For those of you who do know Christ, how has God worked through this word from him? How will it dwell in you richly 
as you leave here this morning? How will it affect your life? Perhaps God has raised your awareness of how critical his name is. Perhaps awareness of how how important thankfulness continually is. Perhaps he's challenging you in regard to how extensive and total and comprehensive his influence in your life is. Perhaps there's an area where you would acknowledge if you were honest, I'm not doing that in his name. Whatever it is, please don't dismiss it as impossible. It is impossible. And yet it is what God calls us to and why he's given us Christ in the gospel. Through his grace and through his strength, set it as your ambition that you will do everything in his name, for his name, for his sake, and for his glory. Father, we thank you for this simple sentence that is life-shaking. I pray that you will work it more deeply into every one of us and that it will accomplish and bear fruit in the ways that you desire it to. We long, Lord, that when we come to ultimately stand before you, we will be able to confess with clear conscience that this was our desire, this was our prayer, this was our goal, this was our hope for your sake and for your glory. So help us in that. Help us toward that. Grow us in this, I pray. In the powerful, beautiful, precious, sweet, blood-soaked name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.